That's more than, uh, no, that's not more than most people can say. You know, it's something. All right, let me, sorry, let me get this situated here. I'm, a, I'm kind of a hot mess, y'all. Hey, I, I'm Thomas, by the way. I always forget to introduce myself. It's good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. So I am the uh, RUF campus minister, and uh, Jason over here is on staff with me. So it's our job to get to know you guys. I would love to grab coffee with you, hang out sometime. Love to hear uh, your opinion on the new Taylor Swift album. I have thoughts. Love to talk to you about it. We got thumbs up back there. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. Um, So at RUF, we believe that you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. What does that mean? That means that we believe that God's grace is central. It means that we believe that what Jesus has done for you is the most important thing that you can wrestle with during your years in college and for the rest of your life. So as as I even say that, a lot of us, we're, we're in different places when it comes to thinking about what Jesus has done and how that might apply to our lives. Some of us might love Jesus. Uh, Some of us might be curious about him. Some of us might find him frustrating. And others of us, like, honestly, we just, we don't know. So wherever you are on that spectrum, I just want to say to you, welcome. And RUF is a safe place where you can come together and we can consider what it might look like to love Jesus. And so this semester, we are going through a series on uh, the parables of Jesus called The Storyteller. And parables are just, to put it simply, they're, they're just stories with a point. And oftentimes you might have had teachers who will use uh, some sort of story to get a point across. They will basically use a story to make something that's unclear more clear, right? But the way that Jesus uses his stories, it actually kind of works the opposite way. Um, his stories aren't supposed to make things clearer all the time. They're actually more about just kind of blowing up our understanding. Jesus' stories, are, they're kind of like a depth charge, right? Like they just go beneath everything in our heart and just blow it up. And why does Jesus do that? Jesus does that because he knows that we are prone to misunderstand who he is. And he wants us to see who he actually is. So Jesus is a storyteller. And last week and this week, we're looking at a uh, familiar parable for many of us. Uh, it's the parable of the prodigal son. And what we're calling it is the parable of the two lost sons. Because it's actually not about just one son who went away. It's about two sons who are lost. And Jesus, in this parable, he's commenting on two approaches to finding the good life or finding happiness. And those two approaches are kind of represented in these two sons. We have the younger son uh, who breaks all the rules, right? He goes to Vegas. He parties. Um, he probably does lots of drugs. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing that in there. I just assume he does. And then the older son who does the complete opposite. The older son uh, sticks around at home. Uh, The older son doesn't go to Vegas. He stays and he goes to church, right? Like perfect attendance record at Sunday school. And there are two common ways. There's the, the way of trying to find happiness by breaking the rules and then trying to find happiness by keeping the rules. And what Jesus is saying in this story is that both of these are wrong. Both of these are wrong. He's saying that the only way to find the good life, the only way to find happiness, is through him. So last week we looked at the younger son, and we saw God's grace for rule breakers, and and we came away with this idea that, you know, no matter what you've done, 
You can come to the party. Like God, God welcomes sinners. It doesn't matter what you've done. He provides richly for you. But this week we're going to be looking at the older son. We're going to be looking at God's grace for rule keepers. And actually, even though the, the story is kind of more known for the younger son that we looked at last week, I think this part of the story is actually the main point of what Jesus is getting at. And I think we can kind of land on this if we look at the context a little bit. So this is in uh, Luke 15. Uh, this parable is actually kind of at the end of Luke 15. The beginning, it tells us the context here. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so we have these two groups of people. We have the tax collectors and sinners, the ones who have broken all the rules. We have the Pharisees, the ones who have kept all the rules. And the tax collectors and sinners, the ones who broke all the rules, they are very attracted to Jesus. They move towards him. And the Pharisees, the ones who've kept all the rules, it, it makes them angry that Jesus is accepting these people. And so this story is a part of Jesus' response to the Pharisees. So who were the Pharisees? If you're familiar with the Bible, the Gospels in particular, you might have heard of them. Uh, a little bit of background kind of might help make it clear. So the Pharisees uh, were this group within Judaism. They arose during what we call the intertestamental times, which sounds really fancy, but what it means is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, all right? And so there's like four or 500 years in there, and things for Israel, Israel has not heard anything from God. In that time, it's just been, it's been radio silence. They don't know what is happening. Um, they're actually struggling a lot during this time. The temple is destroyed. Things are just not going well. Israel was this formerly great nation under King David. They were doing really well. And then all of a sudden they're not. And God had promised to be with them. But these Pharisees at, at, at this time, for the last 600 years or so of their lives, things have not been great. They haven't heard from God at all. And they're trying to figure out how in the world can we hear from God? What's the problem? And so they diagnose the problem. The reason why we haven't heard from God is because we're not committed enough to the Bible. We're not living in this, in this like holistic, wholehearted obedience. And so in order for us to get God to like pay attention to us again, in order for us to get God to bless us again, we need to have like a CrossFit level determination to keep the Bible. Okay. Like, we need to turn it into, like, something serious. Like, the Pharisees were like, okay, the Bible says we're supposed to tithe. We're supposed to give 10% of our stuff to the church. Well, they're like, we're going to do that with our spices. Like, they were serious. They took it very, very seriously. And their rationale, like I said, is maybe God will be faithful to his promises if we do better. So how is this relevant to us? What does this mean to us? The Pharisees, they were an ancient religious group, but they also, I think, represent a timeless tendency of the human heart. And the tendency is this. If I just try harder and become a good person, then God will have to love me. If I just try harder and become a good person, then God will have to love me. You see, we're tempted to believe that our relationship with God, is, it's based on how well we're doing. Uh, to paraphrase the author Anne Lamott, she, she says it like this, that there is a timeless tendency of the human heart to believe that if you live your life just carefully enough, if you hit every single benchmark, spiritually or otherwise, God will love you and you won't have to die. 
And in response to this idea, Jesus has two things to say to us. This is going to be our outline here. Two things he says to us. First, he says, you're a lot worse off than you think you are. And second, he says, you're far more loved than you could ever imagine. So first, you're a lot more loved, or you're a lot worse off than you think you are. Second, you're far more loved than you could ever imagine. I'm going to pray for us and we can get started. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together. Um, It is not a given um, that we be together in person. And so we're so grateful for that. Lord, I don't know where everyone is here tonight. Some of us may be really tired. Um, Some of us may be just really excited to be here. Um, Lord, we're all over the place. I just pray that you would meet us, that you would meet us in this time, that you would show us Jesus, and that you would just draw our hearts to him. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing Jesus says to us, he says, you are a lot worse off than you think you are. So Jesus is combating this tendency of the human heart to think that if we're just good enough, then God will have to love us. God will have to bless us. And he does this by telling the story of the older son. So we see kind of after the story of the younger son, the father has thrown this party. He's welcomed him back. There is a crazy rager going on. And then the older son, we see in verse 25, it says, now his older son was in the field. And we imagine he, he's, the, he's like the responsible one, right? He's in the field. He stayed at home. He's minded the family business while his younger brother was out partying. So he's in the field after a long day of work, probably complaining about the fact that no one's helping him. And then all of a sudden he hears something. It says he heard music and dancing. Here's music and dancing. He's like, well, what's this all about? And he asks in verse 26, he asks his servant, he says, what's the deal? There's music and dancing. Don't people know that there's work to be done? And we see in verse 27 that the servant responds to him and says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. All right, so he's ba- the servant is basically just telling him, okay, like your, your brother's back, father's throwing a party. And you might be thinking, it's like, okay, this is a party. It's cool. Uh, it is cool, but it's actually, it was a lot bigger of a deal than just like a normal party. Like just, oh, welcome back. We'll throw up a you know banner situation. To kill a fattened calf in this time, this would have been like, parties did not have meat or fine dining at this time. To kill a fattened calf, it would have been a big deal. They didn't have refrigeration at this time. So if you kill a fattened calf, then you were going to eat the whole thing there. So what this means is that the entire village is invited. This dad is saying, my, my lost son is back home and I'm throwing a party and I want you to invite everyone. So, so, I mean, literally everyone they know would have been at this party. And since this son, he, he's the one who stayed home with his father, right? He's the one who wanted to mind the family business. He was the one who was more connected to his father, you would think. You would think he'd be pretty excited that his father's throwing a party. And it would be a time to, you know, get together with all sorts of people that he knows throughout the town. You expect him to be pretty excited about it. But actually, what we see in verse 28, we say he is angry. It says, but he was angry and refused to go in. So the son isn't excited that his father's throwing a party. No, he is furious. Kind of imagine the steam coming out of his ears. He's so angry that he decides he's not even going to go in to the party. 
And for this son not to go into this party, this wouldn't have just been like, you know, kind of an okay protest and, you know, the father and the son would reconnect about it afterwards and hug it out. It'd be fine. This would have been a huge deal, a huge dishonor to the father for his son not to show up. So he is intentionally disrespecting his father. And why is he doing this? We see this kind of in his response. We see in verse 28 that that the father hears about his son being furious, standing out in the field, and he goes out to him. And he asks him, you know, he he like comes to him, it says he comes to him and entreats him. So which means he's like encouraging him. He's, He's asking him to come into the party. And the son just lays into him. He says in verse 29, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. You see, what he's doing here, he is, he is just continuing to disrespect. Like he says, look, like no son would ever refer to their father like this. Like you would expect them to say like, okay, dad or, or father, like I, you know, what's the deal? What's going on? But what he says here is, is look, he treats him with utter disrespect. And he says, all right, here's the deal, old man. I have slaved for you. I have never disobeyed you. And yet you don't throw me a party. Like, what gives? And then it just gets even worse in verse 30. He's like, but this son of yours, like I imagine he's just kind of hitting him with the like the alternating caps, like this son of yours situation. <laughs> this son of yours rejected you and he partied your life away. He doesn't say he partied his life away. He says that he partied your property away. The son, just like he partied it all away, and yet you throw him this like rager of a party. The son is mad, and, and you know, he's kind of justified for it. It's like, what gives? I'm the one that stayed home. I'm the one that did all the right things. And this, one, this other one, he goes and does the wrong things, and you throw a party for him. Like, what is the deal? So what's Jesus getting at here in this story? Uh, so I most rec- I just recently watched uh, Toy Story, really great movie. You should watch it. And there's a scene in Toy Story where uh, Woody and Buzz are lost. They're away from Andy and, and they're in a fight under this car at a gas station. And I mean, they're they're both freaking out. Woody more so. Buzz is kind of his mind's in a different place. And they're in this this altercation. And all of a sudden, Buzz says to him, "Because of you, the security of this entire universe is in jeopardy." The entire universe. And Woody's like, what are you talking about? We're lost. Like, what, what's wrong with the universe? And then Buzz goes on this spiel and he's like, the Emperor Zerg has been constructing a weapon with the ability to destroy the entire planet. And I alone have information to stop him. And then Woody is just like kind of dumbfounded. He doesn't really know what to do. And then just like in a classic iconic moment, he's like, you are a toy. You are not an intergalactic space warrior. You're not the real Buzz Lightyear. You're an action figure. You are a child's plaything. And I think Jesus is saying something similar to us in the face of our tendency to think that we can earn God's love. He's saying the very fact that we think we can earn God's favor, it says that we are as delusional as a toy who thinks he's an intergalactic space warrior. So what's Jesus doing? He's exposing our view of God. You see, he's saying, like the older son, we often view God as a slave driver. He says, look at these many years 
I have served you. That word served, it's, it's slave. Saying these many years I have slaved for you. And what the son like, is tipping us off to there is that he viewed the father as a slave driver and he served him out of fear. And we do the same thing with God. Oftentimes we're afraid of him. We think that we have to live a perfect life or he's going to punish us. See, ask yourself this. Fill in the blank for me here, okay? Like, I'm doing okay with God as long as I blank. I'm doing okay with God as long as I blank. Maybe it's, uh, I'm doing okay with God as long as I read my Bible and pray. As long as I have a good quiet time. Or I'm doing okay with God as long as I don't like mess up physically with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Or I'm doing okay with God as long as I don't look at porn. Or I'm doing okay with God as long as no one knows that I look at porn. You see, when we, when we have these things that we think that God can't love us unless we're doing well, we're, we're missing the point. Like in those moments, we need to imagine like Woody saying to us, you are a sinner, and that's okay. That's part of the deal. So Jesus is exposing our view of God, but he's also exposing the darkness of our own hearts. I think what he wants us to see here is that our rule-keeping can be every bit as broken as our rule-breaking. I mean, look at the story. We, we saw last week that the younger son, he said to the father, essentially, drop dead, I just want your money. And what we see here with the older son, he is actually saying kind of the same thing. His father's throwing a party, and he says, I don't want anything to do with you. You see, both of them are alienated from the father. And in the same way, we can be alienated from God by breaking all the rules or by keeping all the rules. And why? You see, because in keeping the rules, we're trying to get God to bless us. We're trying to get God to give us good things. Which is the same, it's the same thing as breaking the rules. It's trying to control God. It's trying to be God. You see, we're, we're trying to figure out how we can make God bless us. If we just do life perfectly enough, then he's going to have to bless us. And what Jesus is saying to us is, you are lost. He's saying you are a big, shameful sinner, and the very fact that you think you can make God bless you proves that point. Jesus is showing us here that we are far worse off than we think. But thankfully, that's not all that he's showing us. In the second part of this passage, we see the next thing Jesus is saying to us, which is this. You're far more loved than you could ever imagine. So we would look back with me to verse 28. So the the son is angry. He refuses to go in. And it says, his father came out and entreated him. What do we see here? We see that the father comes out to this angry son. You would expect him to kind of hear a, a little bit about his son. It's like, He's out in the field and he's angry. And the father would be like, fine, just let him rot out there, you know? That's what we would expect. And that would have been what would have been the cultural norm at the time. If a son had a problem with the father, then it really wasn't the father's problem. It was the son's problem. So he comes out to him. We see this is a different type of father. And it says not only does he come out to him, he entreats him. So it, to entreat someone is to like to urge them, to, to exhort them, or even maybe to comfort them. He, he's coming to him and pleading with him. 
saying, please come in. The father should have kicked him out, but what he does is he comes to him and he urges him to come in. And then we see as the son is kind of responding to him, he's, he's telling him, listen, the son of yours messed up, gambled away all your property, and you're throwing him a rager, and then I did everything perfectly, and you haven't even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. The father just takes it. He just lets him say it. He doesn't respond by kicking him out or doing anything. He just takes it. And then finally he responds. And he says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice the gentleness of this response. Right, the, the son had been accusing the father earlier. He, he wouldn't even refer to him as his father. He just said, look. And he wouldn't even refer to his brother as his brother. He said, this son of yours. And here we see the father saying, son, my child. And then he tells him why he's doing what he's doing. He says, listen, son, your brother was dead and is alive. And even more than that, he's asking him, is there not any part of you that just like wants to come to the party and celebrate? Like, come on. Uh, theologian Robert Farrar Capone, how's that for a name? Robert Farrar Capone. Uh, he sums up kind of what the father is saying, I think in a really beautiful way. So he says that the father is saying to his son, listen, son, we're all dead here and we're having a terrific time. We're all lost here and we feel right at home. You, on the other hand, are alive and miserable. And worse yet, you're standing out here in the yard as if you were some kind of beggar. Why can't you see? You own this place, son. And the only reason you're not enjoying it is because you refuse to be dead to your dumb rules about how it should be enjoyed. So do yourself a favor. Drop dead. Shut up. Forget about your stupid life. Go inside and pour yourself a drink. That's what this father is saying. He, he's showing the son that he loves him extravagantly. Yes, of course, there, there's a little bit of intensity in what the father is saying, but he's just he wants him to know, this is foolishness. Why are you out here trying to serve me? Son, I love you. I want you in the party. He loves his son so much so that he, he wants him to try to, to stop slaving away and to and to just rest in what is freely given. And through this story, Jesus is showing us the same thing, showing us that we are loved in this same way. We're loved in such a way that we don't have to do something to try to impress God. And see, it's, it's good news that we're loved this sort of way, but it can also be pretty hard for us to swallow sometimes. Uh, when I was in seminary, I, I've told this story before, so just bear with me, but... When I was in seminary, I was a uh, TA for my favorite professor, uh, and this guy was like Yoda to me. Uh, he still is. He's really awesome. I try. I read everything by him. Listen to all the sermons. Like I, just, I love this guy. And he singled me out after my first year of seminary and asked me to be his teaching assistant. And I mean, talk about highlight of your life, right? Like it was amazing. I was going to be his padawan. Um, so it was like. I was just excited. So basically my entire seminary career, I, I'm just like trying to make sure that I'm impressing this guy. 
Like I am going above and beyond in every sort of grading that I'm doing for him. Uh, I am just making sure that I get as much time with him as I possibly can. But then life got a little bit busier. It was a busy semester and I was getting behind on my grading. I wasn't doing nearly as good of a job. And in fact, like in, when I was doing well, like I, I was trying to move towards him and get to know him a little bit better. But when I was doing poorly, I, was, I started to avoid him. Because I'm like, I'm just not doing a good job. And I don't think he wants anything to do with me in this. And all of this kind of comes to, comes to a head for me when I show up to a TA meeting late. And I mean, not just late, like a couple minutes late. I show up 15 minutes late. And I absolutely knew it was at this time. It was every day, every Wednesday at the exact same time. And I just show up late. And I, I realize it and I, I, I walk into the meeting, I'm like a sweaty, anxious mess. And I try to sit down in the back. And I'm like, okay, if I sit down in the back, no one will notice me. Which hindsight wasn't going to work because it was like four people in the meeting. I don't know what I was thinking. But I walk into the meeting and I, I just sit there and I'm like just kind of staring at the floor. And I, I notice it's like silent. I was like, oh, shoot. And so I, I just sit there and then I, I look up and, and my professor, the one that I love so much, is just looking at me with this big, goofy smile on his face. And he just says, Thomas, it's really good to see you. And then he's just silent, just like a psychopath, <laughs> just, just staring at me. And I'm just, I'm like, oh, I'm like, sorry, I'm late. Like, I was supposed to be here. Like, I, you know, just slipped my mind, all that stuff. And he, he just stopped me. He said, no, 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 it's fine. I'm just really glad you're here. I'm glad you're on our team. See, this is like one of, I mean, top five most uncomfortable moments of my life, right? What, like, why is this so uncomfortable? Because I expected him to not want anything to do with me. And he looked at me and he delighted in me. He was excited that I was there. You see, it was so uncomfortable for me to be welcomed and appreciated because I knew that I had done nothing to deserve it. You see, in the same way, we want to be able to contribute something. We want to have our name kind of like on the credits of our lives. We want to get some sort of credit for what's happening. And Jesus confronts us in this place. Jesus says to us in the midst of this struggle, he says, it is finished. There's nothing that you could do. I don't need you to do things to earn my love. I love you because of who I am. I did it all. You can't contribute a thing. What might it look like if our what might our lives look like if we really believed that we were this loved? I think instead of being consumed by anger when we see other people doing well, we'd be able to enjoy other people's accomplishments. Instead of uh, constantly being anxious about our performance, making sure that we're just like dotting all our I's, crossing all our T's, we could breathe and maybe just like watch a show on Netflix occasionally. Instead of finding value in our grades or in our spiritual performance or in our correct opinions or being up on the latest social justice issues, we could simply be. We could just be. See, y'all, this is what is so great about the Christian life. This is why I, I get excited to come on campus. Well, not on campus right now, but I get excited to come and talk about Jesus on a college campus because everything else works this way. You work hard, you perform, you control yourself, you sacrifice, and then maybe you'll be loved. 
You see, so much of what we do is working towards being loved. In Christianity, it works the exact opposite way. In Christianity, you are fully loved based on what Jesus has done. You're fully loved, and everything that you do is in a response to the love that you already have. I mean, how awesome is that? That's good news. That's what's so radically different about Christianity. You're able to function out of a full tank. You don't have to earn love. It's freely given to you. Uh, I just came across a hymn this week that really, I think, kind of hits this home. It's a little bit long, so I'm just going to ask you to bear with me here, but I'm going to read this, this whole thing for us as we close. It says this, Nothing either great or small, nothing sin or no, Jesus died and paid it all a long, long time ago. It is finished, yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and to die, everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. It is finished. Yes, indeed. Finished every jot, sinner. This is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Weary, working, burdened one, how come you toil so? Cease your doing. All was done a long, long time ago. It is finished. Yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Till Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. It is finished. Yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Trade toil and slavery for rest and freedom. Trade law and judgment for life and pardon. Trade fear and scrutiny for joy and gladness. Trade cold rejection for loving kindness. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. This is the gospel, y'all. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Everything is done. There's a party going on, and it's for you. See, Jesus is showing us here, you are far worse off than you think you are, and that is actually good news. Because he also shows us that we're far more loved than we could ever imagine. And we could know this is true because Jesus lived, died, and was raised for you. His final cry on the cross, it is finished. When you put your faith in him, that is true for you. It's finished. You don't have to earn anything. It's given to you completely, fully. It is finished. These are the most important words that you can reflect on. Because that's what Jesus has given to us. Let's pray. Lord, these words, um, it is finished. It, it seems too good to be true. It seems too good to be true that everything is done. I know I spend so much time in my day um, feeling like I, I can't be okay unless I accomplish certain things. But Lord, what, what the gospel says to us is that we can be okay because of what Jesus has done in our place. And that is ridiculously good news. It, it seems too good to be true. So Lord, I pray for all of us. There's some of us here who, who know this. 
and who believe this, and maybe our hearts have grown cold to this reality, I pray that you would revive us, that you would um, show us this gospel freshly. And there's some of us here tonight who, who maybe are just considering this for the first time. Lord, I pray that um, you would just be overwhelmingly beautiful to all of us, no matter where we are. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we started something new last week. We're going to continue it this week, uh, where historically Christian